check, check. There I am. Give me just a little bit more. Check, 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 check. Hey, uh, welcome to Livingstone Calvary Chapel. Glad you guys are here with us. A um, few announcements there in your uh, bulletin and uh, one that's not. Um, the Women's Craft Day is coming up. They have a little table out there that kind of gives a little more detail to what's going on. So I would invite you to sign up for that. And the cost is $30, and that's to cover the cost of the, uh, the instructor and also the materials for uh, the craft that you all are going to be doing. Uh, Men's Ministries football, fantasy football nights coming up September 5th at 6. Uh, that's here at the church. Dinner will be provided. So um, not too late to sign up for that. Um, I think there's enough for one league right now. Maybe there is two leagues. Okay, but there's still spots left. Four spots left, guys. So actually five. Five spots left. <laughs> five spots left. Um and then another announcement, um, this week it's, it's just been announced, it's, it's not, or just been decided it's not in the bulletin yet, but um, Austin Shepard is uh, back from college, he graduated and also he's back from his trip from uh, Iraq and Turkey, and um, Austin, uh, when he was, uh, we graduated from ASU with an art major, is that right? Something like that, something to do with art, more specific than that, um, but uh, he has bought a building over in um, Florence, and he's going to be doing some art studio stuff over there. That's his specialty in regards to one of the his his with his major that he graduated with. I'm pointing that all out because the building's in a in a in a state of renovation, and what he's offered up to our men's ministry and Curtis and and Austin are going to be working on that is we're going to be doing a eight week study through the book of Daniel for the men in our fellowship. And we, we're doing a meal, right? And we're going to start at 7? Oh, man, that's a long time to wait for dinner. Okay. It might change to like 6.30. <laughs> but, but right now, there'll be a flyer out next week. It's this new. I want to let you know. But we have a men's ministry group that meets on Friday nights, or Friday mornings and uh, Thursday evenings where we do... Uh, Bible study together, and those two groups are going to be combining together to, and then also inviting um, the rest of the guys in the fellowship who may not a part of those ongoing men's Bible studies to come and join us for an eight-week study in Florence at this studio that that's being renovated. It's it's a cool facility to be able to do this, where some guys can get together, have a meal together, and do a study through the the Book of Daniel. It's going to be on Thursday nights. 637, something like that, and um, the address is 313 Main Street in Florence, and um, we'll have all of that put together in the bulletin and in a flyer for you next week. We want to be able to give the flyer to you because, and, and this is one of the reasons we wanted to do it there rather than the, than the church. Not only did Austin offer, but it's a good opportunity to invite a friend, a neighbor, a relative to go, hey, listen, uh, there's this cool building in Florence. We're going to be doing a, a men's gathering there and a Bible study. And, um, it's, and maybe somebody who would not come to a church building might come to a place like that to share a meal. So um, we want to be able to have the flyers so that you guys can hand them out to, to people in, that you know and, and who you care about. And so, guys, if you, don't, if you normally don't do that, I really want to encourage the men of our fellowship um, I, I truly believe this. Our church will only be as strong as the men who are willing to rise up and lead. 
guys. Um, God set that, that a, a, a structure and an order in Scripture in, in regards to leadership, and He calls men to be leaders. And, and as we grow together in our relationship with one another and our, our relationship with the Lord, and we have unity and a bond and a fellowship in that, guys, God do, continue to do, continue to do amazing and, and mighty things, not only church, but in your lives, in your homes, in the place you work, in the lives of your kids. So guys, please come and be a part of that. Even if, even if you go, I only commit to the eight weeks, commit to those eight weeks. It's going to be starting, um, uh, the, the 14th of September and going on through the 26th of October. So on Thursday evenings. So mark that on your calendars, make time for that. We'd love to see you all come. Um, just a couple other announcements. The preschool has two openings um, Monday through Wednesday, um, if you know somebody who wants to do two days a week or three days a week, we also uh, allow for that as well. Um, it doesn't have to be a full five-day-a-week program, but we had two cancellations at the beginning of the year. So if you know anybody who might be interested in putting a kid in a Christian preschool program, we have two spots still available here in ours. Also, I wanted to let you know an update on the bridge. Um, a couple of cool things are going on. Uh, we started our back-to-school um, uh, year uh, this last Friday, and we did a back-to-school party. And when we do a party or an event like that at the bridge, we usually have a, a, a cover charge at the door because we fed them dinner, gave them dessert, and had all kinds of door prizes as well. And, um, and uh, this is only the second time we did that, we've done that, and we were kind of a little leery about what the attendance might be. Um, um, furthermore, um, with the new school year and things going, we were a little bit tentative as well. Um, normally on a Friday night, we average at any given time. We usually have close to a couple hundred kids that'll come through in and out through a night. Um, we usually average about 120 kids at one given time inside the bridge. Um, but on Friday night, we reached the mark of 199 kids all in there at one time. And it was... <laughs> I'm a little loud, to me, honest, a little bit. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, Justin was out of town uh, at a funeral, and he asked how it went, and I said it was controlled chaos. So, as a, as the school year starts, please keep the the bridge ministry in your prayers, because again, we're partnering with Young Life. Our youth group is meeting down there on Wednesday nights. We've done some changes in our youth ministry. Uh, we're going to be open now on Thursdays uh, after school from 3 to 6 to offer a, a more um, controlled environment where the kids will have opportunity to receive um, discipleship, uh, help with school, um, and in a real mellow environment where only the cafe and the, 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 the cafe-style seating is going to be available uh, so that the, the kids can come down there and we have more of a chance to interact with them. And then, of course, our Friday nights will be in conjunction uh, with things that we've always been doing, but um, we're hoping to really tag on with what the schools are doing and offer even uh, after-school parties, uh, after-school things, or after-school events, after the event takes place at the school, to have the bridge available, like for homecoming and prom and um, all the football games and those kinds of things. And so um, if, you've ever, if you're interested or would like to help out in serving the youth in our community and really bridging that gap into their world, and bringing them the love of Christ. Speak to Justin and Lori. Justin's our worship leader as well, and Lori is his wife who partners in the directorship of that program. We're going to need it this year. And the, the main goal, guys, is to get these kids on Friday nights 
build relationships with them, and then get them plugged into our youth group, other youth groups in the community, the Young Life programs that are going to be going on there. We want them to know and hear about Jesus. And that's the, that's the, the field to go and pick these kids from and, and bring them into the church. So be praying for that, and um, we could use some help. All right, guys, Genesis chapter 49. Uh, if you'll open up your, your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. That's where we're at this morning in our, our study through um, the book of Genesis. We got uh, one week left of this study, and um, uh, you'll find out uh, after that where we'll be going next. <laughs> It'll be in the Bible, I promise. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for um, this time together this morning already where we can see and hear about what you're doing in and through our fellowship. <clears throat> we're grateful, God, that you use us. And um, we want to be used by you, Lord. You, you came to be a servant of all, you said, to us, laying your life down. And God, that's the, the heart you desire to do a, a work in us of change and making us, Lord, like you. And, and um, where we will lay down our lives for you, Lord. And so I pray as we see you opening doors before us, and we know, God, that you've appointed good works uh, ordain them, Lord, so that we might walk in them. I pray, God, that we would do that. We would see and take the opportunities to serve and love those people around us. And as we study your word this morning, God, I, I pray for anyone here, Lord, who um, has been resisting you, who has is, who is held back either an area of their life from you or has yet to come to put their faith in you. Lord, maybe they're here visiting and have... Um, heard about you and, and have known about you, but they don't yet know you because they've not put their faith in you and, 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 and trusted in you and laid their life down and said, I'll do things your way. I pray, God, for, for those people here this morning, Lord, that they would be um, touched by your Holy Spirit, um, Lord, um, inspired uh, by the truth of your word, <clears throat> and Father, knowing and come to know you for themselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, this next chapter is a, it's a documentation or it's a record of Jacob's last words to his sons. Um, this, kinda, this, this part of this event in Jacob's life started last week as we were reading through chapter 48 at the end when, when Jacob realized he was sick and he was on his deathbed and he called Joseph and, his, and Joseph's two sons came along with him and, and Jacob began to speak some last words to, to Joseph. And now we see in this chapter that the rest of his sons have been called to him. And um, with, these, with these sons of his, these other 11 sons of his, now by his side, he, he told them, you can look there in verse 1, and we're going to read through it, but he told them in verse 1 that the words that he was going to speak to them were prophetic in nature. They were, they were prophetic words that had to do with them individually and, and the nation of Israel as a whole. And so he said this to him. He said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. And it's important for us to realize that this foretelling, these prophetic words of Jacob that he would speak to each one of his sons, that, that it, it, it had a manifold purpose. Number one, it, convey, it, it contained an individual message to them. An individual message that revealed their character. Okay, you got to keep it in that, in that context when we go through this. It was an individual message first that revealed their character, but also foretold of their descendants 
future and uh, uh, as, as individual tribes. We, when we talk about the nation of Israel, we talk about the tribes of Israel, right? Twelve different tribes, all related to the twelve sons of Israel. Um, and, and so we see that connection here. But guys, the words that Joseph spoke were more than just this, as they also addressed the future of the nation of Israel and foretold of either events or specific stages in the life or the nation of Israel, which began, and it does begin, with them being birthed out of Egypt. That's where they're at right now, right? And, and so it began with them being birthed out of Egypt and really will come to an end, if you will, with the second coming of Jesus, the Messiah, when the Lord will rule and reign over all of the earth, Jew and Gentile alike. In light of this, I want to point out that this is a complicated chapter. Um, there's a lot of things going on. It's a complicated chapter, and, and I'm not going to go into every prophetic detail, but my plan this morning is to highlight for you some of the main points of these prophecies, some of which have come to pass, and some of which we're still waiting to see, a fulfillment of things yet to come. Now, if you have a study Bible, and a lot of you guys do, I know that, um, this, at, the, at the beginning of this chapter, you probably have a title that explains the chapter that says something like, Jacob blesses his sons. But what we read here is that Jacob only spoke of blessings at the end of this chapter, in verses 25 and 26, where, where, when he was referring to Joseph and his descendants. Yet we're told the very end of this chapter in verse 28 that the words that Jacob had spoke to his sons were a blessing upon them. And, and as we read through this chapter and you have that in the front of your mind, you're going to go, well, that seems really odd that Jacob would say this when we consider what, jo- what Jacob spoke to each one of them, excluding excluding Joseph as the, as, the, as the exception. But yet, when we look at these words that Joseph spoke through that lens of prophecy, we see the blessing. That's where we see the blessing. As Jacob was used by God, it's because, because this knowledge, these words, these prophecies came from God, and so as Jacob was used by God, the blessing came as, they, as, as God was really announcing through their father their future. He was announcing to them their future and telling them of what God had in store for them and their descendants. And truly that was a blessing. And these prophetic words were a blessing because they were an encouragement. And God's words of prophecy are an encouragement. And they were an encouragement to Jacob's future descendants who would experience, we know from this point on, after Joseph's death, as a matter of fact, as we begin to see some things take place, if we begin to study through the book of Exodus, is what we'll see is that their experience in Egypt overall would come with much suffering, the nation of Israel. And they would cry out for a deliverer, right? And God would send Moses. We know the story. We've, we've, we've heard it. And, and in addition to that, not only would these prophecies be an encouragement as they were experiencing much suffering while they were in Egypt, it would also be an encouragement to them as they were wandering through the Sinai wilderness, right? 
We know that the children of Israel were led by Moses out of Egypt and they came to the borders of the promised land. And because of unbelief, it says they would not enter into the place that God had called them to. So God said, good, you won't go in? Fine, you're not going in. And, and <clears throat> he caused them, it says, to wander through the wilderness until that generation, that unbelieving generation, passed away. But again, it was a time of suffering. And, and, and yet they had these prophetic words, these truths that God would speak through Jacob to his sons, to the nation of Israel, as words of encouragement, reminding them that God still had a plan for them, a future for them, a hope for them, good things in store for them. But the, the greatest blessing and word of encouragement can be found in the words, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up our study this morning with this, they'll be found in the words that were spoken to Judah. Because in the words that were spoken to Judah, there's another revelation, a con, a, a, an additional revelation, as God has already spoken truths and prophecies about this up to this point to His people in covenantal promises, but God would give them another, another revelation about the coming of the Messiah who had been promised to Jacob's people, to Abraham's descendants. And when we look at these words of Jacob and how they might apply to our own lives today, we need to see that in addition to being words of prophetic blessing, there are also words that, review, that, that, that reveal um, <clears throat> overall human character, human conduct, which includes every one of us. And, and, and there are things that we can relate to. For in these words that Jacob spoke at the end of his life, we see that three of his sons learned that their past conduct had cost them their future inheritance. That's a sad thing. But in light of this, the biblical principle of sowing what you reap is once again evident. It's everywhere in Scripture. But there are also words that reveal in connection to human character and human conduct, there are also words in these, 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 these declarations of Jacob that reveal God's mercy. There's words that reveal God's grace. And it reminds us of God's redemption and restoration. Guys, that is ultimately greater than our flawed character or our bad conduct. Let's, let's read and, and see what we're talking about. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 1, it says, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in these last days, or in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi, our brothers, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. And in their self-will, that's key, you can underline that, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and I will scatter them in Israel. Judah, verse 8, You are he whom your brothers shall praise. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to a vine, and his donkey colt to a choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey. Lying down between two burdens, he saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to, the, to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel, and Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's hill so that its rider shall fall backwards. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop shall, tra- shall tramp him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his, but his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob." From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your fathers who, who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, and the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph. And I'm telling you what, that's the one I'm claiming, right? And on the crown of the head of him who had separated from his brothers. Benjamin, verse 21, is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour his prey, and at night he shall divide his spoil. And all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. All right, we're going to stop there, and I'm going to tell you right now, we're not, going to, we're not even going to make it that far, but I wanted to read through all the words of Jacob to give us the context of the things that I was already speaking about. And so if you back back up to the beginning of this chapter, back to verses 1 and on through 4, we read of the first message or the first words that were spoken to Jacob's sons. And as Jacob spoke to his sons, he began with some chronological order. He began with Reuben, his firstborn, who was his firstborn to his first wife, Leah, And as he continued, he addressed the other five sons who were born to Leah, and then he goes on down through his concubines and ends up with his youngest sons, Joseph and Benjamin, who were born to his favorite wife, second wife, Rachel. And being the firstborn, Reuben's blessing should have have gave mention to inheriting a double portion. Culturally, that's what we knew to be the right thing, yet the words that Joseph that Jacob spoke to him and about him in verses four or in verses three and four, they are not very complimentary at all, are they? 
And, and like I already mentioned, it doesn't seem like there's much of a blessing in the words that were being spoken to some of these guys. And being the firstborn, as we see this, um, and, 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 and knowing what we should expect and seeing what, what really was spoken, we see a difference. And this is because of Reuben's past sin, right? It's even mentioned here. Uh, because of Reuben's past sin. And, and what we see is that his sin had finally caught up with him. Reuben's sin had finally caught up with him. And as a result, here Reuben lost the blessing of the firstborn, which had been given to Joseph, which we read about in the previous chapter, and to extended to his sons, his two sons. In light of this, guys, we should realize that as a result of his sin, Reuben received less than what he could have had and became less than what he could have been. Reuben, as a result of his sin, received less than what he could have had and became less than what he could have been. And I point this out because this is the case for us too, guys, when we give way to sin. I know that sin promises something more, presents itself in something that it's not, but sin is exactly like this. And and, and when we give way to sin... um, it, it, it always gives us less than what we could have had. You see, God, God says there's a right way and there's a wrong way. There's His way and basically there's our way. And, and our way can even be classified as the world's way. And, 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 and anything different than, than God's way is sin, is rebellion, is disobedience. And, and, and when we give way to that, it's usually with this understanding, this, this false belief that there's something better for us than what God's offering up to us, right? When we make that compromise and we go, no, I'm not going to do it your way, God. I'm going to do it this way. And at the root of it is this belief, this false belief that we're going to be giving ourselves something more, something better than what God says he has for us. But it's never the case. And Reuben is a prime example of that in that when we give way to sin, we always receive less than what we could have had. Less than what we could have had. Less than what God had for us. Furthermore, guys, when we give way to sin, just like Reuben, you know what? We become something less than what we could be. I distinctly remember before I gave my life to the Lord, and it's, it's not that I've stopped sinning, I don't, but I just remember it uh, more vividly in this light that, that I grew up in, in a very religious home. I didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but I, gave, I grew up in a religious home where there were all kinds of rules and regulations. And I knew about God. I didn't know God. I knew about Him. I knew what, what His Word said and that there was these rules and these regulations and what God expected. But I also knew that I didn't keep His commands. And I did it willfully. And, and, and in that, I sensed there was a sensing. I don't, I don't say I know it like I know it now, but there was a sensing of me knowing and understanding that I was not being all that I could be. Could be in God. Not just what God had for me, but what I could be. And that even became more relevant to me and more real to me as I dived further and further away from my, from my religious upbringing and coming into the world where I gave way to all kinds of sin on on a very, very extreme level. And, and I say that because I remember lying there at night when, when all the fun of, of the sin had left and being utterly ashamed and disgusted with the person that I had become. 
a disappointment not only to my parents, to my brothers and sisters, to my family, to, to people who cared about me, but a disappointment to myself. A disappointment to myself. Because I had become something that I did not want to be. Something that I knew that God had not created me to be. And sin is like that. And this is what we see for Reuben. Not only did he get less than what he could have had, he became something less than what he could have been. And so the words that Jacob spoke in verse 3 are, are, are understand this, it's not really a testimony of who Reuben was, but rather it's a statement of what Reuben should have been or could have been as the firstborn. And Reuben should have been a strong man with dignity as the firstborn, the representative of the family, the one to carry on his father's name, one who would bring honor not only to his father, but to his family as the first, as the leader, as the one who would take that place as as head or patriarch after his dad was gone. But he missed out on being what he could have been. Why? Because of sin. He was not these things because he gave way, we know, specifically to the desires of his flesh. And in turn, he revealed himself to be a weak man. One who disgraced his family when he had sexual relations with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Now I can think of some pretty evil and awful ways to disgrace your father, but that's got to that's top it all. And in doing so, it says he defiled his father's bed and he proved that he had an unstable character and, the, and that he had been driven by, by his lust. And as, uh, as, as water is unstable and, and, and is harmful and destruction and, and is destructive, think about that, you know, flooding waters or, 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 or the, the, the ocean in a storm, you know, unstable waters, harmful and destructive. So too, as Reuben's likened to this, he had become like this, harmful and destructive but so too is the case with us when we are led or driven guys by the lust of our flesh by our base desires and not only will there be harm and destruction you know what else there's going to be guys there's going to be disappointment disappointment as we choose to settle for less than what god has for us less than what god's appointed to us now we consider these words of Jacob that were spoken to Reuben as a prophetic, or when we consider them um, as a prophetic lens, if you will, to gaze into the, the history of the nation of Israel, we see that like their father, the, the, the tribe of Reuben was less than what they could have been. In fact, even though Reuben was the firstborn, there's never ever any mention of them in Scripture or uh, as any member from their tribe, the tribe of Reuben, ever being distinguished as a strong or a godly leader. In fact, the leaders who did rise up out of the tribe of Reuben that are mentioned by name were ungodly. And two of them, two such people, were men by the name of Dathan and Abram. And they helped a man by the name of Korah who ended up leading a rebellion against Moses after they had been delivered out of Egypt. And and that's recorded in Numbers chapter 16, which in turn, as a result of this rebellion against God's, the one that God had chosen, 
Um, that's because that's what they were doing is they were challenging Moses' authority and his leadership. And as a result, thousands of Israelites died because of these three men. And overall, the tribe of Reuben is known as declining so significantly in their numbers after losing after leaving Exodus or after 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 the Exodus after after leaving Egypt and before entering the promised land that in the the the, the ranking of the of the tribal ranking in regards to receiving an, an inheritance in the promised land they went from number 1 here as the firstborn began here all the way down to ninth when you read it in the book of Joshua when it came to receiving their portion of, of inheritance of the land. Furthermore, we know that upon reaching the promised land, the tribe of Reuben did not even choose to enter in. They wouldn't cross over the Jordan. And they compromised with a couple other tribes by settling on the east side of the Jordan River. But in addition to revealing their character and conduct of Reuben and his descendants, many Bible scholars point out that these words of Jacob are prophetic as they point to an event in the nation of Israel's history that is a beginning place or a documentation of a beginning of the nation of Israel's unstable ways. Okay? You would, and it happened almost immediately after leaving Egypt. In that, like Reuben had defiled his father's bed, so did the nation of Israel who after being delivered from Egypt and birthed as a nation, also chose to give way to the lust of their flesh at a place called Mount Sinai. For at Mount Sinai, Israel, God's firstborn, committed their first act of spiritual adultery against their heavenly Father by worshiping a golden calf, a pagan god. And when we know that they did so uh, with, with sexual perversion, and they did it even while Moses was receiving the covenant on top of the mountaintop from God and the law which was to be the seal, a sign, a seal of the relationship that God said He would have with His people and where He would be their God and they would be His people. And even while that was going on, when God was making this deal, they were down below worshiping a false god. And we know that the nation of Israel would, would, as a whole, they would repeatedly give way to the lust of their flesh, to the act of idolatry and the worship of pagan gods. Yet, guys, in spite of that, in, 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 in all of that historical failure of the nation of Israel, we know that God never forsook His children. God never forsook His people. And Jacob never forsook Reuben. Reuben just missed out on some things. Now if we continue on in verses 5-7, through seven, we read about this next son, Simeon and Levi. And the words that, that Jacob spoke to his next two sons, Simeon and Levi, are much like the words that had been spoken to Reuben in that they're not favorable. And Simeon and Levi were also sons of Leah and both were, as it says here in these verses, they were cruel and self-willed men as revealed by the, their, their crime of murdering the men of Shechem, or the city of Shechem. And we studied through that um, as we've been going through the book of Genesis. And we know, we know that um, they did this um, um, to avenge their sister. 
who had been raped by the, the, the prince of that city. But because they acted, the Bible tells us here, in an unrestrained way, okay? Because they acted in an unrestrained way. The words that are used there are self-willed. Because they acted in an unrestrained and self-willed way, we're told that they acted in anger and with violence. And as a result of their sin, Jacob said in verse 7 that they would be scattered and divided because it was not good to dwell with them wasn't good to dwell with them. And, and likewise, guys, think about it. If you're, some, if you're hanging out with somebody who's self-willed, not God-willed, and, and somebody who's, who's, who's acting out with anger and violence, it's not good to hang out with them. That's the idea here. It was not good to dwell with them. And, and certainly it was right for these two sons, as we look back over that story, to seek justice for the rape of their sister Dinah, especially when we consider that Jacob did nothing but it wasn't necessary for them to, to wipe out the innocent people of that city in order to gratify their own desires for revenge. So in verse 6, Jacob said, Let not my honor be united to their assembly. And prophetically speaking, we know that both Simeon and Levi, they were scattered. They were scattered so that no other tribe could assemble with them, just as it says here. And as I mentioned last week with the tribe of Simeon, they declined so much, so much, even more than the tribe of Reuben during that Exodus period of time. And because of this, they even lost their distinction as a tribe. And, and, and when we're told in, verse, in, in, in Joshua chapter 19 that their inheritance was appointed to them within the inheritance that was given to the tribe of Judah. Furthermore, we know that the tribe of Levi was also given no inheritance in the promised land. Rather, they were divided into 48 cities. Divided into 48 cities or 48 towns in the promised land and literally scattered, as it says, it would be here throughout the nation of Israel. Yet, guys... Even in the midst of this, in the midst of all this discipline and reaping and sowing of, of sin, what we see is that through the Levites, guys, we're given another picture of God's amazing grace. Because we know the Levites were called to be the priestly tribe, the ministers of God, the intercessors. They were shown God's grace. A people who, in spite of their faults and failures, were given the honor and privilege of ministering to and interceding for God's people. And it cannot be ignored that we too, as a result of God's grace, you and I, as a result of God's grace, have been promised priestly positions, the Bible says. As a matter of fact, it says kings and priests. And there is coming a day, the Bible teaches us, when we will be made these kings and priests to our God who will reign upon this earth by Jesus' side. And we, like the Levites, will receive this blessing in spite of our faults, in spite of our failures, because of the, of the grace and the redemption of God that we've received as a result of His sacrifice, as a result of His blood, His precious blood that's been spilt on our behalf. 
This is declared to us in the book of Revelation by four living creatures, it says, and 24 elders in heaven who fall down, it says, before the Lamb of God, saying in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9-10, through 10, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open up its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. And out of every tribe, and out of every nation, and tongue, and people, you have made us kings, and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. God's grace. In addition to the individual application that Jacob's words had for Simeon and Levi and their tribal descendants, we also see another prophetic application in these words when we consider the history of the nation of Israel in light of the division or the separation that's mentioned here. In that... We know that the nation of Israel went through what the, what's historically recorded for us as two separate dispersions and where they were taken literally out of the land of Israel, the promised land, because of sin, because they were self-willed and dispersed. Really as a result of forsaking God and being self-willed. The first was in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians and the second was in 586 B.C., by the Babylonians. And in each instance, we see that God scattered His people, allowing them to, to, to be divided as a nation because they were a self-willed people who would not heed the warnings of the prophets, nor would they submit themselves to God's will and God's control. In light of this, I want to point out that it was a man by the name of Thomas Fuller who once said, Beware of no man more than thyself. Beware of no man more than thyself. And the fact of the matter is, self-will is a part of our human nature. It's a part of our human nature and it drives us to make self the center of its own universe but in this selfish manner our self-will desires to pull god from his throne and deny others justice and mercy in order to advance our own selfish ambitions simeon and levi clearly example this and in light of this we can see how self-will is insistently stubborn insisting stubbornly and arrogantly on having things our way self-will as opposed to following the will of god and in the end guys our self-will is ultimately a conforming to the world and to the beliefs of this world and because of this we can see that the sin of self-will is a dangerous thing it puts us on this path of destruction that opens up the doors for painful consequences. And not only do we have Simeon Levi as an example, we have the nation of Israel as an example as well. And we read on in verse 8, and it says, Judah, you are he who, shall, who your brothers shall praise, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from, from between his feet until Shiloh comes. 
And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washes his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Now guys, when we consider these, this is, this is all the further we're going to make it today, by the way. We'll finish the rest in conjunction with chapter 15 next week. But when we consider Jacob's words to Judah, I want to first point them out to you in the prophetic light rather than looking at the conduct and the character and, and the, the, the application to our lives personally. I want to look at it in a prophetic light because here what we're being told is some really cool things about the Messiah. Some prophecies in relationship to the coming of the Messiah. And, and this becomes evident when we consider that Judah is likened to the lion here by Jacob. And, 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 and we also must consider that Jesus, the Messiah who came from the tribe of Judah, is clearly identified in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, as the lion from the tribe of Judah. And so Judah's likened to the lion, but Jesus is that lion that lion of the tribe of Judah that came out from the tribe of Judah. And in regards to the Messiah, we have to pay specific attention to verse 10 here, which tells us that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And this is because the word Shiloh, it literally means the rest giver. And... um, that word Shiloh, which means the rest giver, was seen by um, ancient rabbinical scholars to be a name or one of the names of the promised Messiah. Makes sense, right? The rest giver. The one who alone had the right to claim rule over God's people, over the nation of Israel. And this was in part due to another prophecy that was spoken by the man of by the man by the name of Balaam in Numbers chapter 24 verse 17 which foretold of the Messiah and said that a star shall come up out of Jacob and a scepter shall come up out of Israel. And I point all of this out because in these words that Jacob spoke there's an indicator There's an indicator given to us in regards to the timing of the coming of the Messiah. It's not the only place in Scripture that does it. Matter of fact, you can go to more detailed prophecies that actually gives a countdown to the very day when the Messiah would appear to the nation of Israel. But this is one of these these prophecies that give an indicator in regards to the timing of the coming of the Messiah the Shiloh, the rest giver, as we're told that the scepter shall not depart before he comes. And of course, the scepter is speaking about ruling and reigning, right? A king has a scepter. There's authority and there's power there. In other words, what we're being told is that Israel would not lose their ability to rule or reign over themselves, their right to govern themselves, until the Messiah would come and rule over them. It would be a transferring of power. Now, from a Jewish perspective, this prophecy presents a major problem. From a Jewish perspective, this prophecy presents a major problem considering that in 12 AD, the Jews who had been at that time under the rule of Rome finally had their right to capital punishment removed from them. 
We see that played out biblically as when Jesus was arrested, they, they wanted to put him to death, but they could not. They had to turn him over to the Roman authorities. And then that's because the Jews had that right, that, 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 that last strand or thread of self-governing removed from them by the Roman government. It was because they continued to rebel. The Romans were known for coming in and taking people out and putting people in and allowing a certain amount of self-government to take place within the people who they ruled over. It was a magnificent way of world domination. But the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, were so rebellious to that to, and, and so unwilling to submit to that rule that they, they kept rebelling, they kept rebelling, and then the, the, the Roman fist of, 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 of rule continued to clamp down on them until, until 12 AD when they finally said, enough's enough, this last thing is removed from you. It's taken from you. And even though they had been in captivity for a number of years at that point, it was this final act that caused the Jewish leaders to believe that the scepter had, had departed from Judah. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote about this event and he said that in 12 A.D., the rabbis ran through the streets of Jerusalem, tearing their clothes and crying out in despair because they believed that God had forsaken them the scepter had departed but shiloh had not come that's the jewish perspective but you and i have a different perspective because we know that in 12 a.d something had already happened something had already happened in regards to fulfillment of prophecy because even though the rabbis and the nation of israel were right in declaring that the scepter had departed them considering they'd lost the right to rule over themselves, they were wrong in thinking that the Messiah had not come. They were wrong in thinking that God had forsaken them, for Jesus had come. And at this time, Jesus being somewhere around the age of 12, was with His people just as God had promised. Now, this is, not, this is my opinion. <laughs> I'm not going where I said, Curtis. I'm going to a different place. This is my opinion. Because we're told of a day, a time in Scripture, when, when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Jerusalem, right? The Passover feast. And Jesus got lost and he left behind. Where was he at? In the temple. And the people were amazed. The leaders were amazed. And even though Jesus' ministry had not started when he stood before and again, in the temple and read from the book of Isaiah, when we see maybe an official start to his ministry, there was at least this revealing at this point. And I would suspect, my opinion is, is that maybe the two things happened together in 12 AD. Just a thought. Um, the point is, God always keeps his promises, guys. That's the point. That's the application. And I know we've heard that before, and I, and I know that's something that we know to be true, but that's something that we doubt a lot. God always keeps His promises. And this prophecy and the historical events that it points us to reminds us that, that when, when considering the promise of God, guys, faith is necessary. When considering the promises of God that have been written to us and spoken to us individually, they have to be lived out through faith. Because there are going to be times when our finite understanding and the limited ability to see things with our eyes 
There are going to be times when the bigger picture can cause us to wrongly believe like it did for the Jewish rabbis in 12 AD that God has forsaken us. God, I don't see you. You said you were going to do this and, I do, and, and, and it's not happened. But we live in this, this paradigm that limits us. So we live within these finite constraints that, that, that allows us at times to not see everything that God's doing. But yet faith gives us the eyes to see. Just like it could have for the Jewish rabbis. Think about it if they go, okay, the, the Messiah must be here somewhere. We don't know where he's at. Let's go find him. It wasn't God's promises that were untrue. It had come to pass just like He said. It was lack of faith and unbelief that caused them to doubt and fear that God had forsaken them. And is that not true in our own lives? Because all the promises of God are yes and amen. And God has promised to protect us. God's promised to provide for us. He's promised to forgive us when we confess our sins. He promised us an eternal hope, a living, uh, a living hope. That in spite of our faults and our failures, that His grace is bigger than our sins. Do you believe that? Even though at times all you can see is your own fault, your own failure, and your own sin. But faith is what gives us the ability to see beyond what our, 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 our physical limitations give to us. And the reality is, is God is always doing what He said He would do, even if our eyes in that moment cannot see but God still gives us the ability to believe through our faith and see the bigger picture. Now, as we close and we look at these words that Jacob spoke to Judah and in regards to personal application to Judah and, and even tribal application and, and into our own lives, I also find it interesting. I find it very interesting that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi's sins are all exposed and documented down for, for generation after generation after generation to see, yet the sins of Judah, which are just as serious, are not even mentioned. I mean, you might think that Judah was just this angel of a child that never did anything wrong, right? All these wonderful things are spoken about him. But remember, Judah had been the one that suggested selling Joseph for money. When they threw him in the pit and we're going to kill him, he's on. let's not kill him. Let's sell him. At least we can get some money. Greedy little guy. He's a businessman, yeah. Greedy little guy. <laughs> but even more than that, remember Judah had held back his youngest son from his Tamar, from his, from his daughter-in-law Tamar, when, when his other son had died. And, 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 and in doing so, he through a series of events, he ended up having sexual relations with her when she pretended to be a prostitute and he ended up getting her pregnant. Innocent guy? No. But guys, yet in, 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 spite, of, in spite of Judah's sin, he's identified here, he's identified here with the lion. He's associated with the lion, the tribe from whom the lawgiver would come. The tribe his brothers would praise and the tribe from whom all the rightful kings of Israel would descend from and the Messiah be birthed out of. And when we look back to the previous words that were spoken to Jacob's other sons, something seems amiss. You go, that's not fair. For why would Judah's past sins be ignored while his brother's sins were not? And the answer is revealed to us when we consider 
that the words Jacob spoke were addressing the character of his sons. And obviously there was something different in Judah's character. Something different that set him apart. And I believe that it was the fact that Judah had been changed. We've talked about this leading up to this, and this really becomes evident to us with Judah's interactions with Joseph when they came in the time of famine to receive food. I'm not going to go back through all of that, but remember, although Judah had done these things in the end, he was the one who offered himself up as a surety for his brother Benjamin to his father. Additionally, we see that the change in Judah, we see this change in Judah revealed to us as he exposed his heart before Joseph back in chapter 44 and freely even offered himself to be a slave in his brother's place. And in doing so, he had sought to make right the past wrongs that he had done. He knew, he proclaimed, that these things were happening to them because of what they had done to their brother Joseph. And now, in, in, in his humanistic attempt to make things right for the past transgressions that he committed, because he had changed in his heart, he's going, take me, don't take Benjamin. And guys, this sets Judah apart from his other brothers. It sets him apart in order to become elevated to this, to this place of honor in spite of his past failures. Justin, if you want to come up, we're going to end with this. Because, guys, what Judah shows us is that he had in the, in the end that his, that his character was one of a person who had a sacrificial heart. And the sacrificial heart that Judah exampled is the heart of God. The sacrificial heart that Judah exampled is the heart of God. And this is, this is what is exampled to us ultimately through Jesus Christ who came to give Himself for us. And when we realize that, that, that Judah's sins were, were virtually wiped clean with no sign of remembrance, it reminds us of the type of forgiveness that God extends to us when we too repent of our sins and make and in and, 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 and doing so, He makes us like Him. God makes us like Him. The Bible says that He gives us a new nature. He comes to live inside of us. We become new creations, spiritually rebirthed into new life where, where all the old things pass away and, and everything before us becomes new. In that God, by His grace, promises to change us, to sanctify us, to make us a holy people separated unto Himself. And He promises, guys, in doing so, to wipe out our sins. To cast them, it says, into a sea of forgetfulness. And according to Psalm 103, verse 12, God who is great in His mercy will then remove our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for these reminders this morning. God, because the truth is, is our faults, our failures, our sin is forever with us. And at times, God, this causes us to live like people who are still in bondage to things that You've set us free from. 
we become discouraged and depressed. And we carry around that, that weight of sin, that guilt and that shame, God, that You truly have already died for and set us free. And Lord, somehow we believe that Your grace is not enough for us. But the truth is, God, no matter what we've done, or how many times we've done it, when we come to You in faith, and we confess our sins to You, that You are faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness, Lord. That when You were on the cross, You cried out, it is paid for, it is done. And, and Lord, that You were looking down upon us, down through time, individually and personally, and saying, Lord, there's nothing that could separate us now from You. I pray, God, that You would help us to understand that more and more each and every day as we see Your goodness and Your love being extended to us in spite of who we are. I pray, God, that You would help us to believe who You say we are now in You. A new thing where the old has passed away. Where our sins are forgiven. And that You remember them no more. I pray, Father, that that would give us the joy of our salvation that You speak about, that it would fill our hearts with peace, that it would cause us to draw near to You and far away from things of this world, God, that, 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 that want to give us less than what You have for us and cause us to be something less than what we are in You. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here again this morning who has never yet given their life to You, yet that has, has held back taking that step of faith, Lord, to put their trust in You. Guys, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, if that's you this morning, if you're here and you've heard about this man Jesus before, maybe you were raised in a church like I was, but yet never made that decision to do things God's way, where you've been self-willed doing things your way, and yet this morning you hear God knocking on your heart, calling you to, to let go of that and to begin to do things His way. To put your faith and trust in Him and to receive Him and to accept Him as your Lord and Savior so that your sins too might be forgiven and that you too might become a new creation in Him. If that's you here this morning, with everybody's eyes closed, just raise your hand. I want to acknowledge you so I can pray with you. Is there anyone? God bless you. Anyone else? All right. Still with your eyes closed, guys. Just bear with me for a minute. You raise your hand. Why don't you look at me? Go ahead and stand up. Please. The reason why I'm doing this isn't to embarrass you, but it tells us that when Jesus called His disciples, He, he called them publicly and openly to make a profession of their faith to come follow Him. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me this morning since you raised your hand. Because if you can do that here with people who love Jesus and love you, it's going to be a lot easier for you to do that in the world where, where, where it's different. Okay? So why don't you say this prayer with me, okay? I'll, I'll pray and then you can repeat it, alright? Heavenly Father, I come before you and confess that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge my need for You and ask that You would forgive me of my sins. I accept You as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat.
Praise God, guys. Why don't you stand with us? And uh, 